In 2011, President Barack Obama announced the pivot to Asia. And in March 2013, Xi Jinping was chosen to be the president of China. Today, we continue with part seven in our multi part series examining China's foreign policy. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome back to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We need your support. We're joined again by Dr. Ken Hammond, professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University, founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University, and an activist with Pivot to Peace. Dr. Hammond, welcome back. Always glad to be back. We're going to talk about 2011 to 2021. This is the last decade in this multi-part series on China's foreign policy. We began the series looking at the first decade, 1949 to 1959. That was the period where the Chinese government was in close alliance with the Soviet Union, the two countries together, along with their socialist allies in Eastern and Central Europe and North Vietnam and North Korea, constituted two-fifths of the world's population. And then that alliance began to fray, and it frayed throughout the 1960s. It broke apart. China was no longer in and perhaps an adversary with the socialist camp. Then the Soviet Union collapses in the late while the Eastern European governments in the late 1980s, the Soviet Union collapses in 1991. We begin and began in our last discussion, China's foreign policy under these new world situation, the new world environment, where the US had basically proclaimed itself the unipolar power in the world. It went on the war path immediately. It began to take down independent anti-colonial governments or governments that had their origin in the anti-colonial project that included attacks on Iraq, of course, the invasion of Afghanistan, right before that, the war directed against Yugoslavia in 1999. And then finally, the U.S. is following the invasion of Iraq, bogged down in the Middle East. Then in 2011, the Arab Spring begins, a new a really new moment in politics in the Middle East. It begins as a people's rebellion against the government, the anti-democratic governments in Tunisia. It spreads to Egypt. It leads to this phenomenal events in the middle of Cairo that brings down the Mubarak government. But then on March 19th, 2011, the U.S. uses protests in Libya as a pretext to begin or to launch a NATO war against Libya. Now, 2011, Ken, is a very eventful year. We have the Arab Spring. Then there is, as I mentioned, the NATO attack against Libya. Later, 
the Obama administration in Australia, in Hawaii, in multiple places, announces that the U.S. is going to engage in what was called a pivot to Asia. Let's start and talk about that year. When the year started, or in the early part of the year, the U.S. and its NATO partners, Britain and France in particular, went to war against Libya. They destroyed the Libyan government. Massive daily bombings of the country. And they went there with UN authorization. Resolution 1783 authorized the use of force. And the US and Britain and France said they were going to Libya. They began the bombing of Libya to protect civilians. Now, that was a ruse. What they were really trying to do was carry out regime change. The reason they could use a UN authorization is that Russia and China decided not to veto the resolution authorizing the use of force, but rather abstained. And that allowed the U.S. to have the the fig leaf of legitimacy, the U.N. mantle. Let's start there because um, things change dramatically over the next few years. But let's start with the decision by the Chinese government to abstain rather than to veto the bombing of Libya. Well, I think that that reflects what had been China's sort of international posture over the previous decade and more, which, as we talked about a little bit last time, this period of of kind of keeping a low profile, being non-confrontational with the Western powers, especially with the United States. This was the era, the first decade of the 21st century, carrying on from you know the 1990s of the Chinese emphasizing these phrases such as peaceful rise, that they wanted to very much present an international attitude of, uh, you know, we're not going to rock the boat. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to shake things up. We just want to go about our business in developing our economy and pursuing our own domestic agendas. And of course, fundamental to that was the continuing role that China was playing of being a major exporter in the global economy, becoming increasingly integrated in the global economy, but primarily as an exporter to Western markets and markets in other parts of the world as well. And I think that that whole period under the leadership of Jiang Zemin and then under Hu Jintao was one where China very self-consciously kept this kind of low profile, this kind of turning a kind of inoffensive face towards the international community. As you say, that was just about to change kind of in, in two different ways in response to the more aggressive posture, which the United States was just about to assume, but also with changes of leadership within China itself, with the election of Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang in 2012 to the leading positions in the party and the government. But that in 2011, that that was still in the future. And I think that those kind of abstentions at the United Nations and the Security Council were really, really indicative of this, you know, more low key, this low profile approach that China had been pursuing. In the case of Russia, Putin was not the head of state at that time. The head of state was Medvedev. And Putin decided to run again in the next election after that. And part of the, at least the scuttlebutt, was that he was angry that the Russian government at that time had also abstained, that he felt it was a geostrategic error outside of morality and ethics and all that, just from a geostrategic premise, 
that it weakened Russia, it strengthened the United States. Certainly, from the point of view of what happened in the Middle East after that, when the U.S. was able to destroy the government of Libya after relentless bombing and then the lynching, basically, of Muammar Gaddafi, the 70-year-old head of state, in the streets, Hillary Clinton you know, had that famous video that day. She was smiling, giddy, laughing, and she said, we came, we saw, he died. That was about a lynching of a head of state. And immediately, the U.S. turned its guns, its attention to Syria. And there was a similar uprising going on in Syria against the Ba'athist government led by Bashar al-Assad. And the U.S. felt, I think, the Obama administration, which had been somewhat, Obama himself had been somewhat hesitant about going to war against NATO. It was really Hillary Clinton and the Washington Post and, you know, the usual suspects in Washington in the military industrial complex who were demanding a war. He went along finally, but it was so successful that immediately the U.S. turned towards Syria and Obama's new mantra was Assad must go, Gaddafi must go. Earlier, Saddam Hussein had to go and he was executed. Gaddafi executed in the streets. Now Assad must go. So it created this amazing momentum for additional imperialist intervention in the Middle East. Do you think that the Chinese were alarmed? I I know that in Russia, the foreign policy grouping was alarmed. Putin came back into power. He won the election for presidency. And in 2013, moved decisively to intervene militarily to prevent the overthrow of another government similar to the Libyan government. And that turned out to be decisive. But Do you think it had an impact on the foreign policy calculations of the Chinese that the Americans were so aggressive and that abstaining or appeasing American imperialism was having perhaps the opposite impact? Yes, I think it did. I think that it's a combination, of course, of both the actions that the United States was taking in the Middle East and in North Africa. And of course, you know, these high profile events such as the regime change campaign in Libya and then the increasing interventions in Syria, those are kind of the headline grabbers. But of course, you know, American forces have been operative in West Africa, in places like Mali, down, of course, continuing in Somalia and elsewhere in Africa and other parts of the world as well, that American interventionism in under the Obama administration was, oddly enough, actually on the rise. And I think that in tandem with then the things like the announcements of the pivot to Asia, that seemed to be in some ways a, a statement that, you know, well, we've kind of got the situation in the Middle East under control. We've kind of got this, this situation with the challenge of Islamic fundamentalism under control. So now we're going to start turning our attention to China. And I think that the foreign policy formulators in China heard that loud and clear and understood that the Obama administration certainly felt that they were on a roll, they were gaining control over the situation, and that you know China was going to be next to sort of be brought in line. And I think that the realization of that contributes directly to the kind of reorientation of China's self-presentation, if nothing else, that comes along with the ascendancy of Xi Jinping. The next year, after the events of 2011, the Philippines, this was before Duterte, the Philippines, under 
really the direction, the guidance of the Obama administration, the U.S. State Department, at that time led by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, files a claim against the People's Republic of China over its claimed territorial sovereignty in the South and East China Sea and marine rights. And they filed this claim not in an Asian court, but in The Hague. Talk about that. And I believe that must have been a real shocker for China, especially given the fact that this international tribunal ruled against China in the Netherlands about whether China had sovereignty in the South and East China Sea. Well, that whole case, of course, was a fascinating exercise because China's not a member of that body. It has never acknowledged the legitimacy of that legal authority. So for the Philippines to, you know, bring litigation in that context, you know, was clearly a move in which it was kind of a slap in the face to China to begin with. And the idea, yes, that a court based in Europe, one which, of course, the United States itself also does not recognize the authority of, although it counseled, as you say, the Philippines in initiating this effort. So this was clearly pretty much a public relations exercise to try to get a ruling that would bolster the position of the Philippines. And of course, that's, you know, the court, the panel ruled that the Chinese claims had no legitimate basis, no grounds. And that has become a reference point. You see that decision cited quite regularly in every discussion of the South China Sea that takes place now. Of course, the issue in the South China Sea, interestingly enough, is not one that was actually initiated by the government of the People's Republic. The claims, the territorial claims that China has in the South China Sea predate the establishment of the People's Republic. They go back to the period of the Republic and in some ways even earlier than that. But both the government of the People's Republic of China and the local authorities in Taiwan maintain these claims. The idea somehow that this is associated solely with China's expansionism in the present moment is just not grounded in reality. The control over these islands, the use of these islands by Chinese merchants and by Chinese navigators goes back, well, it goes back many centuries, but the claims to them in terms of modern legal standing go back well into the earlier part of the 20th century. So the Philippines, you know, the Philippines have navigated a kind of tortuous route in their relation with China, sometimes tacking towards China, sometimes tacking towards the United States, trying to sort of, you know, maximize their own positions, but increasingly recognizing the sort of realities, I don't know if you say on the ground, but in the region that really reflect the relative positions within the South China Sea. It's ironic, too, when you think about it, Ken, that the U.S. is helping the Philippines file claims at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, in the Netherlands, not in Asia, to defend Philippine sovereignty over these areas. When the United States invaded the Philippines in 1899, I mean, that was the first real pivot to Asia. Very, very bad for the Filipinos. A million Filipinos died. Aquinaldo was taken prisoner, died, murdered. The assertions and claims of independence for the Filipino people snuffed out. The Philippines made into a colony by the United States and only formally becoming independent after World War II in 1946. 
And here you have the Obama administration with a straight face telling China, look, we're standing with the Philippines in defense of its sovereignty over its territories, which, by the way, just happen to be the islands in the area, the maritime areas that you, China, have asserted historic rights to. And the court, the court in the Netherlands ruled, quote, although Chinese navigators and fishermen, as well as those of other states, had historically made use of the islands in the South China Sea, there was no evidence that China had historically exercised exclusive control over the waters or their resources. You have the the Europeans and the Americans who have pivoted to China and to Vietnam and to Asia writ large in such a colossally devastating way, colonizing, invading, killing, murdering, robbing the peoples of Asia, and then to become the great sort of podium at which the great mantra about the rules of sovereignty and the rule of law is dictated. I mean, it's hard to beat in terms of a double standard. Well, it reflects, of course, we're hearing echoes of this a lot right now with all this rhetoric about an international rules-based order and all these accusations by American diplomats, Secretary of State Blinken and others, that China is somehow challenging the international rules-based order, when in fact, it's a rules-based order that's been entirely made up by the West, by the United States most preeminently since World War II. And so, you know, what China's actually being accused of is, you know, not playing by our rules, you know, by the American rules. There's a high degree of irony involved in all of that. You know, you mentioned just a moment ago talking about the region around the South China Sea. Vietnam, of course, is another country that has some concerns, some issues in the South China Sea, some issues about some of these territorial claims. But the contrast between Vietnam and the Philippines is fascinating that, you know, Vietnam, which has its own long and very complex historical relationship with China, Vietnam chooses to pursue these issues, these concerns bilaterally, by negotiation, by discussion, you know, not to become a kind of pawn of American interests in the area, although the Americans have certainly tried to get Vietnam on board. They've made a number of offers of particular kinds of aid. They even wanted recently to try to get the Vietnamese to allow them to station coastal naval forces in southern Vietnam because that would be useful in case there is a conflict in the South China Sea, and Vietnam steadfastly has declined to do that. The Americans conduct themselves in Southeast Asia as if no one there has any historical memory of how, you know, the United States colonized the Philippines. The United States, you know, waged a war for 20 years to try to dominate Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. They act as though all of that is simply in the past and therefore forgotten. And no one remembers what America's real imperialist conduct was like. But certainly, you know, the people in the region, especially China, Vietnam, those folks who had pretty direct experience uh, have a pretty clear understanding. One of the parts of the Asia pivot or one of the features you could see, especially with the U.S. championing Philippine rights purportedly at The Hague, is the U.S. was trying to create a network of exclusion, and this was part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership as well, that the U.S. would weld together the other ASEAN nations, the other Asian nations into a U.S. 
sponsored or a U.S.-backed campaign or network against China, that seems to me to be fanciful. I mean, not only do the Vietnamese and the Chinese still, in spite of all of the differences, including, as we said, the 1979 military conflict, the two parties, the communist parties in China and Vietnam have close ties. The governments have close ties. They have diplomatic ties. But if you're a smaller country, and Vietnam's not small, it's 90 million people, but smaller than China. But no matter how big or small you are, if you're not China, but living nearby China, for the most part, you're going to want to have good relations with China. Absolutely. And I think ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, has done a very fine job of sort of creating a regional identity for itself. You know, back after World War II, in the period where decolonization struggles were underway in the Netherlands, East Indies, in British Malaya, in French Indochina, the United States tried to replicate the NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization system. And they actually went in and sort of created what they called CETO, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, I guess it was, with an effort to make that into an anti-communist front that would facilitate American dominance in the region. You know, as the French, the British, and the Dutch departed, the Americans, even though granting formal independence to the Philippines, they nonetheless maintained a major military presence in the Philippines, and they wanted to become, you know, sort of the regional hegemon. But CETO faded away after the United States rather ignominiously was forced to withdraw from Indochina. And the countries of Southeast Asia, although they certainly have their differences, they have different systems, they have different traditions, they have different interests, have managed to create this association which interestingly enough has been internally sort of self-critical. You know, the ASEAN is dealing with its relationship, for example, with Myanmar right now. They were critical of the situation, the relationship between Vietnam and Cambodia for a while. You know, so it isn't as though they're just a sort of big group hug. They're a very sophisticated set of countries. And ASEAN as a whole has taken a very, very positive stand towards China. They're participating in regional trade agreements. And I think that the American attempts to manufacture a geopolitical crisis in the South China Sea is getting a lot of traction in places like Australia, but not really much in the region itself. The people who surround the South China Sea are interested in having it be a realm of peace rather than a realm of conflict, which is the objective of the United States. Ken, I want to go a little bit to the actual announcement, the shift in U.S. policy that is known as the Asia pivot or the American pivot to Asia. I'm looking at Brookings Institute. Brookings, of course, a leading Washington ruling class think tank. It's a picture of President Obama standing next to the Chinese leadership in India and Japan and Russia at what was the East Asia Summit Indonesia 2011. And this article is written on December 21st, 2011. Here's, I'm going to read a couple of sentences and then I want to talk to you about the Asia pivot and what Obama meant then and what, you know, before we talk about how it's evolved or devolved. Here it goes. The sudden death of North Korean leader Kim Jong il, again, this is 2011, 
drives home the importance of being able to work not only with U.S. allies, but with China in managing Asia's key threats. This is what makes striking the right balance in America's overall strategy towards Asia so vital. Okay, that sounds not that aggressive. Next paragraph. The Obama administration's overall posture towards Asia has, in fact, evolved considerably over the course of the past couple of years. President Obama laid out the results in fullest form last month as he traveled to Honolulu, Australia, and Indonesia for a series of major meetings. The message of this remarkable trip warrants careful examination as it articulated an integrated diplomatic, military, and economic strategy that stretches from the Indian subcontinent through Northeast Asia and one that can profoundly shape the U.S.-China relationship. The core message, America is going to play a leadership role in Asia for decades to come. Now, that sounds so, like, benign. The other thing that the article doesn't highlight is that part of the Asia pivot was a military plan to redeploy U.S. military forces largely from wars in the Middle East where the U.S. was bogged down and not succeeding while China was rising peacefully in the Asia-Pacific region. And redeploying, the plan was by 2020, a year ago, to have 60% of all U.S. naval and Air Force assets in the Pacific. Again, when you think about Trans-Pacific Partnership, there was an economic component, the attempt to sort of become the guarantor of Philippines or other non-Chinese Asian republics that was had a diplomatic element to it. But at the bottom of all of it, when you redeploy 60% of your Air Force and Navy or have 60% of it deployed into the Pacific at a time when the United States is not at war, it's not at war in Vietnam, not at war in Korea, not at war with China, the Chinese must have in a hard-headed sort of way, looked at this, perceived of this as something other than benign. Absolutely. I think that the military foundation of the pivot is really the key to it. You know, diplomatic talk and, you know, let's facilitate some trade, uh, you know, that's all very nice. But what you're really talking about is ramping up the military presence of the United States in a ring, really, to the extent that they can, leaving out, of course, the Russian border, but surrounding China, confronting China as much as possible with American military force. And, you know, this this came in tandem, not only the announcement of the pivot to Asia, but Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had also published some articles in foreign policy journals talking about sort of the necessity to launch another American century, you know, another period of American dominance in the world. And I think that 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 gets down to the real bottom line here, which is this idea that for a while the United States felt like maybe it was going to be this, you know, unipolar sole superpower in the years after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the end of the Cold War. But then there were the challenges that came from the Middle East and from the war in Iraq and everything that stemmed from that. But then by the time of the Obama administration, the American elites, you know, as, as we were talking about earlier, kind of began to feel like, well, maybe they had that under control. And as they then turn their attention back 
to China. This is when they began to feel like, well, wait, China's becoming this major economic power. They're having greater political influence in the region. They're developing their military capabilities, but they're not turning into a liberal bourgeois democracy. There's no color revolution. There's no regime change there. We thought that they were going to become our happy little junior partners in in a global order that the United States could dominate. And I think that American policymaking elites began to really kind of wake up to that their dream of China becoming just like us wasn't going to happen and was never really on the Chinese agenda at all. And so you get this new assertiveness, this new aggressiveness, whether it's the the rather remarkable declaration that we're going to have another century of American domination. I mean, how the chutzpah involved in that is just astonishing. But the much more pragmatic or the much more effective message of we're going to deploy 60% of our military force with the pretty obvious objective of containing China. Sure, the Chinese leadership looked at that and saw a new containment policy, a new version of George Kennan's old line about the Soviet Union, now focused on the People's Republic. And nothing since then, nothing since 2011, nothing in the last 10 years, has been anything other than a continued assertion and indeed an extension, an enhancement, a buildup of that confrontational containment type policy towards China. But the military redeployment and all these war game scenarios and all these reconfigurations of the kinds of forces that are going to be deployed, all of that has been oriented towards the possibility, if not from certain elite perspectives, the desirability of military confrontation with China. I'm looking at the magazine Defense One. It's a one of these multiple industry, military industrial complex industry magazines, very popular with the big war contractors, and of course, you know, a voice of the Pentagon. The headline of this article, which was written a year ago, but it goes, it's like, here we are, that was nine years after the announced pivot to Asia, or about really almost eight years, because Hillary Clinton had been announcing it a little bit, but then Obama put the final official announcement in December 2011. Here's the article. The U.S. wants to intimidate China with hypersonics, comma, once it solves the physics. This is the headline. The U.S. is pressing ahead with new missiles, but questions remain about engineering tactics and even geopolitics. A small set of uninhabited Pacific islands very close to China may be the destination of some of America's most sophisticated and controversial future weapons, hypersonic missiles that remain nimble even at five times the speed of sound meaning these missiles that can you know, carry a nuclear payload or a conventional payload are moving that fast. On Friday, U.S. Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy said the still-in-development weapons would likely change the future of war. Speaking at Brookings Institute, McCarthy said hypersonics would be a new kind of multi-domain task force that the Army was rolling out. These highly mobile units will be deployed to attack enemies at long ranges with electronic warfare, cyber attacks, and long-range munitions such as hypersonic missiles. And then he said the new units can be or will be deployed to what he calls the Senkaku 
or other nearby island chains. What they're saying, Ken, is the Pentagon is planning a confrontation with China at these islands, some of these disputed islands. The U.S. wants to put in these hypersonic missiles that travel five times the speed of sound. That would mean that China would have to be on constant alert because that means those weapons could hit their targets literally within, if not seconds, certainly minutes. That was partly the strategy that the Reagan White House and the Pentagon pursued in the early 1980s when it ringed the Soviet Union with intermediate and short-range tactical nuclear weapons that had a flight time of six minutes to their target. And the U.S. targeted every Soviet political office in the whole country with these nuclear missiles. And so the Soviet Union became very alarmed. The Soviet Union felt, especially in the early years of the Reagan administration, that they had to prepare for war. They had to divert lots of resources away from other industries and away from consumer products to get ready. It created immense tension. And then Reagan could say later to Gorbachev, hey, let's relax things. You give us Eastern Europe and you know, we'll integrate you into the world economy and we can you know, limit the level of tension. It had a profound impact on Soviet thinking. The other part of this that I think, if this all sounds crazy to people, the U.S. nuclear war strategy and the U.S. is modernizing to the tune of about 2 to $3 trillion its nuclear weapons capability to use nuclear weapons that are more usable, meaning more mobile, maybe have adjustable yields, something that could be used in battlefield situations. The U.S. is modernizing its nuclear weapons systems, but the U.S. nuclear weapons program was always premised on the first strike, not first use, but first strike, meaning the goal of the U.S. nuclear planners, contrary to everything that we're told in the public, was to strike the enemy first with nuclear weapons, and then the rest of the nuclear weapon or missile defense shield capability would be able to mop up and capture or catch or mitigate a retaliatory strike from the enemy. It was always an aggressive first strike policy. And the calculation in this weird, bizarre, Dr. Strangelove-like thinking, which is actually U.S. military doctrine, the official doctrine, is that if the U.S. were to engage earlier the Soviets or today China in a real fierce military battle close to their countries, the U.S. would have the first strike capability such that the Chinese wouldn't play chicken. In other words, that the U.S. would be able to limit the conflict to the regional area where these new weapon systems would be deployed, betting that China wouldn't take the step up the escalation ladder such that it would risk having thermonuclear war with the United States when the U.S. is fully prepared for such an event. Now, that all seems crazy, but actually that's how the Pentagon is thinking right now. Yeah, it's not a reassuring moment. There's been so much talk just in the last few months around the situation with Taiwan. The United States has been, and including especially the new Biden administration, has been very provocative towards China around the issues of Taiwan, not just with new arms sales, but the Biden administration has undertaken kind of diplomatic moves, which are unprecedented since the 1970s, inviting representatives from the Taiwanese local government to the inauguration in January, suggesting that new policies 
policies about official relations between the local authorities in Taiwan and the American government should be considered. Those are very provocative diplomatic moves. And of course, not just the Biden administration, but congressional voices, which are always much more provocative, overtly call for American military intervention to support Taiwanese independence and all this kind of rhetoric. And the United States, you know, sending naval forces through the Taiwan Straits, through what are really China's domestic waters, you know, and then, of course, American politicians turning around and American military spokesmen turning around and saying, oh, China's becoming so much more aggressive about Taiwan. When in fact, all China is doing is taking defensive measures in response to these aggressive moves by the Americans. The Chinese are not unaware of these planned deployments of new weapon systems and things like that. They're not unaware. They can read these you know, publications as well as anybody else. They're not unaware of this much more aggressive mentality that has emerged in both political and military circles towards China. So it's a frightening period in terms of these relationships. I think that you know the Chinese understand very, very clearly that it's not in anybody's interest to have open military conflict about Taiwan or about the South China Sea or about anything else. But you know, should the United States intervene directly in Taiwan, in the Taiwan Straits, there are national interests that get involved and, you know, one doesn't like to contemplate the way that those things might play out. But I think it's a very, very dangerous moment. And it's a moment when we really, all of us need to be speaking out about de-escalating these tensions, about the need to stop the aggressive actions of American military and political figures and the anti-China rhetoric that's so prevalent in the American media. This is a time when the voices for peace between China and the United States really need to be speaking out as loudly and clearly as possible. China integrated into the world capitalist economy. It was allowed access to it after the opening up in 1978-79. And the deal was basically U.S. corporations got to invest in China. They got to make a lot of money. They could employ Chinese labor at wages that were far lower than the wages that they would have to pay U.S. workers in Michigan or Ohio or Pennsylvania. And because of new technologies, they could ship those products anywhere else, including back to the United States, and it would still be a lower cost of production. That was the deal. And China got access to technology. Many people, millions, hundreds of millions became employed wage workers as opposed to living in the countryside. It helped alleviate poverty. New cities were built in sometime in a matter of a few years. The face of China shifted dramatically in those 40 years. The American government at that time thought, one, it's going to be good for our corporations. Two, it fastens China to us as a sort of a political ally, and it makes China in some way subservient because it can't break free from the world economy. And we, the capitalists in the West, still dominate the world economy. The dollar is the world's reserve currency. There's the SWIFT payment systems. There's all kinds of methods whereby the U.S. in particular dominates the global economy. So that seemed to be okay. And here we are now with a complete reorientation of the U.S. towards major power conflict with China, preparing for conflict in the South or East China Sea, the military preparing for perhaps even a larger war. And at the same time, 
even the U.S. technology companies and the U.S., in many cases, thus the U.S. military companies are reliant on, partly on, reliant on products that come from China. So there's this weird, odd contradiction that has developed as a consequence of U.S. policy, China has integrated into the world economy, but now having identified China as the main enemy that must be fought sometime in the future, the U.S. is also making the argument that the U.S. military and U.S. technology companies have to be self-reliant and can't be dependent on Chinese manufacture. And so there's this effort underway to what's called decoupling. And you also see that U.S. technology companies that were not faring well in comparison to their Chinese competitors like Huawei and the introduction of 5G technology used and the government used national security as a pretext to sanction Chinese companies, to prevent or prohibit American companies or U.S. or Western companies from buying important strategic parts from Chinese companies. The CFO, the chief financial officer of Huawei, was arrested when she got off a plane in Canada. She's still not free. Let's just talk about this phenomena, the irony, the contradictoriness of decoupling, and whether the U.S. at this stage could actually decouple from the Chinese economy. Well, I think the term contradiction is exactly the applicable terminology here, because China's integration into the global system, the global economic system, which is largely the global capitalist economic system, has been underway, as you say, for 40-some years now. And they have been very successful in that endeavor, both in terms of achieving the kind of initial objectives of that opening, which was to gain access to capital and to technologies to help develop the domestic economy, develop the productive capacities of the Chinese economy. That has obviously been a successful endeavor. But it has also meant, as you say, that China has become intimately bound up with these global relationships. China, though, has, I think, done a reasonably good job of understanding the contradictory qualities of that relationship and has taken some steps. They haven't gone too far down this road yet, but they've taken some steps to sort of insulate themselves to a certain degree. They have been making moves towards having the domestic currency, the renminbi, be more internationally utilized, be more you know, traded, not as a speculative commodity in the international monetary markets, but as a medium of international settlement of payments. They've also of course, been developing alternative financial structures, the Asian Development Bank that is centered in Asia, not as a subordinate of the Western, like the World Bank and the IMF and all that, but new instruments for financial arrangements, largely in conjunction with the Belt and Road Initiative. So they've taken some measures to kind of create at least incipient forms of autonomy. But there's no question that the Chinese and American economies and the Chinese and European economies are highly integrated with one another and certainly remain, I suppose one would say, vulnerable to developments on both sides. It should never be forgotten that China holds 
trillions of dollars in U.S. government debt. China is the biggest purchaser of treasury bonds and other kinds of debt obligations from the United States. Now, obviously, they can't just at one turn dump those back into the market. That would be devastating for China as well as for the United States. But it's an indicator of the degree to which these economic systems have become interdependent. And so, you know, the whole confrontational, aggressive posture that the United States has assumed towards China is in some ways self-defeating. What would happen to American consumers if there was a serious rupture in the relationship between China and the United States? What would happen to American corporations that have investments in China, that have great productive facilities in China? What would happen if China began to reduce its investment? And in fact, it has been reducing its investment because of this more aggressive posture by the American government, its direct investments in American businesses. These are very, very complex relationships. And in many ways, to some extent at least, the problem is that American policy sometimes gets caught up in the rhetorical posturing of politicians from both parties kind of competing with one another to see who's toughest, who's going to take the hardest line towards China. And that unfortunately can find its manifestation in actual behavior, in actual policy formulation. The idea that the Biden administration, you know, supposedly this great fresh breath of liberal democratic policy, but the Biden administration is steadily positioning itself as more aggressive, more hostile towards China than even the sort of craziness of the Trump period. And that just, it's counterproductive. It's not in the best interests of the American people. It's not in the best interests of even of American business, really. And things like the Chamber of Commerce, organizations like that, and other spokesmen from within the business community are pretty critical often of these anti-China postures. But they're driven by the peculiarities of the American political system to a significant degree. And that only reinforces, once again, this contradiction within which the United States seems to have become enmeshed. Right. As Chairman Mao said, politics is in command. I mean, it's against the economic interests of American capitalists to go down this road. The deal with China has been quite good for American capital, and they're dependent on it. And yet the politics of the Cold War or major power conflict, that's in command. It is indeed. And of course, we know that the interests of you know what president eisenhower called the military industrial complex can be quite compelling the power of the military production corporations the aerospace industry all of that these are not forces to be discounted they have their own particular niche within the american economy but not to go too theoretical on this, but the government, the bourgeois state, is supposed to balance the various interests of the different sectors of capital. It's not supposed to become subordinate to one particular wing of capital, such as the military and aerospace industries. But unfortunately, they have a perhaps disproportionate influence in Washington, both in Congress and within the executive branch. So it's a troubling time to say the least, in terms of America's relationship with China. And it's one 
which for the Chinese is quite challenging. And you can see that in the frustration that has been articulated recently by prominent Chinese diplomats, especially in that recent farcical meeting in Alaska, where you know Secretary of State Blinken tried to sort of wag his finger and lecture the Chinese once again about how they need to get with the program, meaning the American program. And the Chinese, you know, were finally sort of reached the point where they're like, what are you talking about? You know, you can't be serious about this anymore. This is not the way that sovereign states respect and deal with each other. But the American political mentality is so strongly shaped by these particular interests that it makes for a very challenging time for the Chinese as they're trying to navigate their way through this new era. Indeed. And the other irony is that in the first Cold War, the Cold War with the Soviet Union, the Soviets were you know, not integrated into the world economy. It was against the law to sell even one computer to the Soviet Union. And the Jackson-Varnick Amendment in 1974 in the U.S. Congress made that official. That was the law of the land. People would go to jail if you gave the Soviet Union anything. The Soviet Union was the most sanctioned country in the world. It developed a self-reliant economy or an economy that was self-reliant within the zone of the socialist bloc, a second world economy, a second kind of globalization, so to speak. But in the case of China, having been fully integrated into the world economy, and partly as a measure against the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc when it was first undertaken in 1978-79, the tremendous irony, I mean, we've talked about irony in this series, but historical ironies are plentiful, or you might call it dialectics, the unity of opposites and the opposite within itself it plays out in the case of U.S.-China relations. The U.S. integrated China into the world economy to help undo a communist-led government, the Soviet Union, and by so doing, allowed China to grow economically. And then China, having grown economically, while the U.S. taking all of its unipolar power and wasting it, squandering it by going to war after war after war, invading Afghanistan, invading Iraq, you know, bombing Libya, getting hunkered down in a war in Syria, this arrogance and hubris of imperialism, the dialectic comes roaring back and the same economy that was integrated as part of a U.S. anti-socialist bloc tactic is now strong enough that the U.S. feels, oh, we must destroy it. And so how will we destroy it? The same way we deal with every other issue by ramping up the military budget by trying to have a full spectrum dominant strategy reliant first and foremost on the military. And meanwhile, China's priorities are things like the Belt and Road Initiative, not building military bases in 800 places in 130 countries, but emphasizing how to build investment and economic integration with other countries. And it's becoming more popular. Again, you would think in each and every case, the U.S. is doing something that doesn't make sense, doesn't even make sense from the point of view of imperialism. But imperialism or American imperialism under the domination of the Pentagon, under the domination of the military industrial complex, does these irrational things and is addicted to them because it's addicted to war. Anyway, Ken, in our last couple minutes, I actually want to talk and help our audience understand 
this difference, the difference between a U.S. foreign policy, which is based on getting maximum profits everywhere where the U.S. corporations and banks set up shop and subjugating other countries to U.S. neo-colonial domination, or if they don't, they sanction them. And you counterpose that to what China's foreign policy when it comes to economic issues as the centerpiece. And the Belt and Road Initiative was actually incorporated into the Chinese constitution in 2017, meaning it's an inviolable principle right now of Chinese policy towards the rest of the world. Well, I think, yeah, that's a good place to sort of end our journey through the history of Chinese foreign policy, because the Belt and Road Initiative is, at this point, is really China's principal way of looking to the future, to the global future. You know, China is certainly obviously concerned about its relationship with the United States. It's deeply integrated into that American-dominated existing global system. But the Chinese also have a long historical perspective, and they're looking to the future, and they're pursuing policies with the objective of developing a global infrastructure of trade and communication, which will be not necessarily totally separate from, but will be an alternative to the existing order of things focused on you know, the North Atlantic capitalist core. And I think that that's really fundamental to to understanding what you know what what China is up to in the world. We were talking about irony, and China faces its own ironies in this because, of course, their choice to open up to the outside world, their choice to embrace the capitalist global system, was also one that was predicated on their objectives, their goals, their hopes to develop their economy, improve the material conditions in the country, and that has been very successful. But it has also embedded them in these contradictory situations. But I think that when we look at in terms of their relationship with you know America and the West, but I think that when we look at the Belt and Road Initiative and we look at China's efforts to invest in developing countries, in building infrastructure, in developing trading relationships, we need to see that in a very real world kind of way. This isn't a charity program. It's not a welfare program. It's not China going out and just trying to be a benevolent philanthropist in the world. These are policies that are designed to promote a world in which countries which today are marginalized, are less developed, have been exploited historically by European and American colonialism and imperialism, and are seeking to find their own paths in the world. China's assisting them, as I say, not out of some selfless motivation. It's in China's self-interest to develop these relationships, to develop this infrastructure. But it's an interest of mutual benefit. It's an interest in developing these other countries, aiding these other countries on their own path to their self-development in a way that's going to be exactly using the term you were just invoking, it's going to be a dialectically positive interrelationship. It's going to be one in which the investments of China, the development of these infrastructure networks, the expansion of these trading relationships, the enhancement of the capabilities of the recipient countries are all going to be mutually interactive. They're going to be mutually beneficial. 
in ways that that will be beneficial to China. It, as I say, it's not disinterested, but it's not exploitative. You know, the United States, the Western powers, the anti-China forces all want to say, "Oh, China's just the new colonialists. Oh, China's just you know pursuing debt imperialism and all this." But when you get down and you look at these relationships and you look at what is happening and you look at how China has been either forgiving debt or you know extending payment periods in response to the COVID crisis, the global pandemic, you see that it's not a relationship of exploitation. It's not a relationship that's just purely philanthropic and beneficial, but it's one of mutual self-interest, mutual development between China and a whole host of countries, not only you know developing countries like Myanmar or Bangladesh, but even you know Italy, Serbia, countries in Europe that are trying to take advantage of this opportunity. So, you know, I think that the situation right now is one in which, you know, China finds itself in a number of complex relationships between itself and the West, between itself and the developing world. And it's trying to navigate a path that will allow it to, as Xi Jinping likes to say, to achieve its initial objectives of socialist development, but which will also allow it to you know, to find a viable way of surviving in the world, even in the face of these aggressive postures by Western and especially American imperialism. I want to ask one final question. I mean, you're right. I mean, Italy now, which is part of the G7, a leading economy in Europe, is now a partner in the development of the Belt and Road. The Belt and Road has a land route and a maritime route, and it's the creation of these integrated trade routes, the building of infrastructure, massive infrastructure. In fact, the estimates are that Asia's infrastructure development needs are in the range of a trillion dollars, US dollars per year over the next 15 to 20 years. So we're talking about a massive sort of shift in the center of economic gravity, continuing to shift away from the West, away from simply the capitalist industrialized West where capitalism or advanced capitalism took root in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, it's moving east and it's moving south. And China is the locomotive for that through the Belt and Road Initiative. This was an initiative of Xi Jinping when he became the leader of the People's Republic of China in 2013. His leadership in particular, Ken, has been the target of U.S anti-China propaganda. Xi Jinping is routinely referred to as an autocrat. He is now the bad guy. He's being talked about in a way far different than the Chinese leaders who preceded him following the death of Mao Zedong in the mid-1970s. And of course, inside of China, Xi Jinping has been the champion of a very large-scale anti-corruption campaign I think thousands, perhaps tens of thousands or even more officials have been replaced because they were involved in corruption, also associated with the development of a market economy or the integration of China into the world economy. Xi Jinping is emphasizing Marxism and Maoism and Chinese history and the legacy of the Chinese revolution. I mean, the emphasis is about China's historic struggle in the direction of socialism, the propaganda or the agitational emphasis of the Chinese government and its emphasis in education has shifted under Xi Jinping. From your point of view, 
and recognizing that the Belt and Road Initiative and China's more assertive position in world politics has taken place in these last eight years since Xi Jinping became the leader of China. How critically important is his leadership? And if he were to go, which eventually he will go, will there be a continuity? Of course, we can see in China, as we can see in other countries, especially emerging and developing countries, that you know when one leadership group leaves, the struggle, the transition is frequently a point of contention. Anyway, it's really a matter of the institutionalization of the power of the Communist Party and of institutions like Belt and Road. Let's just talk in our final minutes, your own projections as someone who has been in China, who is a scholar on China, who is fluent in the language. What's your own projections? Well, I think that it's certainly true that Xi Jinping, the era of Xi Jinping since 2012, has seen the sort of re-emergence of the emphasis on Marxism, on socialism, on completing the original mission of the revolution. It has seen China adopt a more, what I like to call a kind of no-nonsense policy in its relationship, particularly with the United States. That period that we talked about at the beginning today of kind of keeping a low profile, emphasizing the peaceful rise, emphasizing these, you know, we're not going to rock the boat kinds of positions, that has come to an end. And China has achieved a sufficient degree of success in its reform programs, in its economic development. They feel stronger, they feel confident, and they feel that, pardon my French here, but you know, they don't have to take a lot of crap from the West anymore. And I think that that's been a clear change and a clear transition, but I don't think that that reflects any kind of a rupture in terms of the Chinese project. I think that Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, who kept that sort of low profile approach, did so in a very self-conscious way. That had been, after all, Deng Xiaoping's advice was to sort of don't push it, don't show off, you know. But that age has passed. The necessity for that posture has passed. And I think that one of the things that I think has driven the intensification of American hostility towards China, the hostility of the American political and media elites, has been that Xi Jinping has been so much more overtly and avowedly and recognizably a Marxist. It's as if, you know, for 20 or 30 years, the Americans had been telling themselves, oh, China will become just like us. They're going to take the capitalist road. They're going to become they're going to reform their economy and all this. And then along comes Xi Jinping, and suddenly they're shocked. And they're like, holy cow, this guy's actually a communist. Well, my sense is that Xi Jinping is simply the latest expression, the newest expression of this, but that the social forces that he represents, the nature of the Communist Party, the leadership role that the Communist Party plays in the country, that's a fixture. That's going to be continuous. I think, as you say, I mean, he's not going to be around forever. He may do a third term. Who knows? The constitutional revisions that were made allow for that, and it may be that they feel that that personal continuity is critical at this very, very difficult period for China. That's up to the Chinese. That's something about which, you know, I think it's not incumbent upon us to tell the Chinese what to do. But at some point, Xi Jinping will fade from the scene and other leaders will emerge. And I suspect that they will continue to try to seek the best ways for China to move forward, both with its project of trying to build socialism at home and with its role 
in the wider world. I expect that there will be twists and turns along the way. And of course, it is incumbent upon those of us who support China, who encourage China, who believe in socialism and building a better world more broadly to be critical of China when they make missteps and to be supportive of them when you know we see them doing what we see as the right thing. But I think that I don't envision a post-Xi Jinping transformation as you know, some sort of major shift. History may prove that that's an erroneous assessment, but I think that Xi Jinping is simply the current stronger, more outspoken version of the leadership which has been guiding the party and China for the last 40 years. That was the voice of Dr. Ken Hammond. He is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University, founding director of the Confucius Institute at the New Mexico State University, and activist with Pivot to Peace. This concludes our multi-part series in the Socialist Program on the history of China's foreign policy starting in 1949 when the government of China, led by the Communist Party, took power after a 27-year-long civil war. China has reshaped global politics, and we believe it will continue to do so. We look forward to continuing our presentation, our analysis, our assessment on China and China's place in the world. And of course, as Dr. Hammond has recommended, we also organize for peace and against the U.S. war drive that right now continues with intensity to target the People's Republic of China, the Chinese people, and the collateral damage to that war drive is Chinese Americans and Asian Americans who are the victims right here at home of a growing wave of hate crimes and racism. So stay with the Socialist Program. If you support our work, go to patreon.com forward slash the Socialist Program and subscribe to the show. You've been listening to the Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Brian Becker.